Welcome to the Non-Op Series for the Minerals and Royalties Podcast, where EMPs and drilling capital meet the minerals and royalties space. Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Jackie Haney and Anna Mee, managing partners of Union Rock Partners, who came back onto the podcast to break down their minerals and non-op strategy across the Bakken, DJ, and Eagleford how they integrate midstream and marketing fundamentals into their underwriting, and what they have planned going forward for their new fund three. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Jackie and Anna had to say. Anna, Jackie, good morning and happy new year. Welcome back onto the podcast. It's been a little, almost three and a half years. So good to have you back on. A lot's changed. You're two, two funds later, a bigger team, some different basins. So looking forward to hearing more. Thanks for having us. Happy new year and to you as well. And thanks for having us back. We were excited to be back and share um, some updates. You bet. So going back down memory lane, August, 2020, when you came on, world was a little bit different, you know, crawling out of COVID or right in the midst of it, I guess. Quick refresher, if, if those want to hear a little bit more detail on y'all's background and kind of the evolution of your team and coming together as partners, they can check out that initial episode. But just strategically, what Union Rock was was focused on, you know, where you guys were at in terms of fund one, fund two, what your team looked like. Take us back to August 2020, and then we'll look forward and kind of the updates and the deals you guys have done since then? Well, I think, you know, a lot of us were trying to figure out what to do at that point in time, you know, following the shutdown and the pandemic and and shift in commodity prices, quite frankly. You know, we were still looking to wind down Fund One at the time in, in 2020. We had royalty assets remaining in that portfolio, as well as we had just launched Fund Two in, in 2019, just before the pandemic. That was with a contribution of assets from some entities that we and man- managed prior to Fund One, as well as trying to, to actually, we had just had our first close for Fund Two with that contribution of assets, and as well as our anchor investor came in in June of 2020, which was such a sign of you know confidence in our investment thesis and our team, given what was going on in the world at that point in time. Yeah, no commitment from an investor in June 2020. It's a, you know fundraising is like bringing a dry mop to the desert, and and. June 2020, <laughs> right? So well done there. Well, no, thanks for and at this point, you guys are really DJ focused. First fund was royalties heavy. So Copper Trail Partners was the name of the first fund. Why don't you run through the stats and then you guys had a monetization event in September 2021 to Invico. So we can kind of break that down and, and talk through that process. But why don't you start at the top? What did Copper Trail look like? What was the thesis? Kind of deals? So on so forth. So Copper Trail was a continuation of a thesis that Jackie and I had been implementing across the DJ Basin since really, gosh, 2010. So we ended up raising Copper Trail so we would have a blind pool of funds to continue to invest in royalties and non-op. So continuing that into this fund one, we ended up with a portfolio that consisted of 68% royalties and 32% non-op. And it was completely focused in the DJ. So all assets resided here in Colorado. We ended up with just about 4,300 NRAs and 445 leasehold acres across that portfolio. And we implemented the strategy where we continue to be an aggregator. So that average deal size was just over a million dollars in that portfolio. And as you just mentioned, we were able to fully exit that fund in at the latter part of 21. And at that point in time, it was just royalties remaining in that portfolio. Question. So were you guys doing 
leasehold and maybe participating in the AFBs and selling that production? Were you selling the AFBs and carving out overrides, which went into that royalty portion that was sold to Invico? I mean, at at that point, there was only royalties left when you monetized to Invico, right? So walk me through kind of how you recycled the non-op portion of the assets. So the non-op portion of the assets were sold the previous years prior. So we had sold all of those non-op assets. So when it came to our royalty position, we truly just had royalty exposure. And so we did not participate in any of the AFBs with what was remaining in that portfolio as we do now. The team at Our Recent Associates has partnered with Tim Powell to bring you brief legal updates on issues that matter to mineral owners, non-ops, and operators. We hope you find this segment informative. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me, Rachel Reese, at rreese at rreeselaw.com. Here's a case that we have been watching, and if you own or operate minerals in Louisiana, you should be too. Today's case is a recent ruling by the Fifth Circuit called Self versus BPX Operating Company. The Selfs, along with their co-plaintiffs, were force pooled by BPX under the Louisiana Force Pooling Statute. Since neither the statute nor Louisiana case law addresses whether an operator in this situation can charge post-production costs back to the unleased mineral interest owners, BPX is charging these costs and the Selfs are arguing that they cannot. BPX, of course, argues that proceeds mean net proceeds. But they also argue for the application of Louisiana Civil Code Doctrine of Negotiorum Gestio. (laughs) There's a fun new phrase for you. Which basically means that when you are voluntarily acting on someone's behalf and for their benefit, under the belief that they would approve of your actions if they were aware of them, you should be paid for all necessary expenses incurred in taking those actions. And therefore, BPX should be able to deduct the post-production costs attributable to the self-interest in the production. Instead of ruling on the issue, the Fifth Circuit decided to punt the question to the Louisiana Supreme Court so that they aren't stepping on any toes and creating new state law. Federal courts will sometimes do this when the case will decide an issue that the state courts have not yet addressed. Just the other day, the Fifth Circuit asked the Louisiana Supreme Court again to rule on the same issue in the case of Johnson versus Chesapeake. So next, the Louisiana Supreme Court will weigh in, likely sometime next year, on the specific issue of whether these costs can be charged by operators in this situation. And then the Fifth Circuit will take the case back up from there. Okay, so why am I telling you this and why should you care? Whether you're an operator or a mineral owner, post-production costs aren't cheap. In some areas, they can swing the effective royalty received by as much as 5%. Whichever way it goes, I'm a fan of getting issues like this settled, where there is no guidance one way or another. That way, everyone has the same expectations when they find themselves in a force pooling situation. RRNA will continue to watch this case closely. Subscribe to our blog, Announce of Prevention, or follow us on LinkedIn for the latest updates. The information and material in this advertisement is general information about our practice and firm and is for educational and informational purposes only. This information does not offer specific legal advice, and the use of this information does not create an attorney-client relationship with RRNA or any of its attorneys. The information in this advertisement should not be considered legal advice, and persons should not act upon this information without first engaging professional legal counsel. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and so for those listening, and I did a, an episode with Sarah Pettigrew at, at Invico probably a year, year and a half ago. That was a $19 million deal that you guys exited and the DJ. You know, and it's interesting how different the DJ is viewed today than when it was, you know, late teens and, you know, 2020, 2021. I mean, dare I say DJ base is in favor right now. 
at least if you're in the core areas, any large buyer will will buy the DJ assets 100%. It's near the top of the list. I would argue if you can get enough scale, DJ is almost second to Permian in the core areas, which is a wild thing to say. Should we go back three years ago? DJ was the top of the list of like, absolutely not. We can't even look at it. So it just goes to show you that things change pretty drastically. And, you know, I guess in this space, you can't really marry yourself to anything conceptually. Right. But going on to fun Two, which that's where the Union Rock brand uh, formed. When did you launch it? Walk me through the stats that is fully deployed as of right now. Right. So what, what does the portfolio look like? How did the strategy evolve? Way more non-op. Right. So curious to see why you focus more non-op over to you to run through the stats and then we'll, we'll have some follow up questions. Yeah. So the you know, we launched it in, in in 2019, had that first close with a contribution of assets, had that first close in June of 2020, had our final close in December of 21. And that's where the predominant majority of that capital came in for fund two. So, you know, even though we were open for, for two years, we really, you know, say that we we closed in December of 21. And that's when we put the majority of that capital to work between 2021 and 2023, quite frankly. So, you know, we were able to deploy that very quickly at the time we thought that there was an attractive return profile in non-op assets. And that's really why we construct the portfolios that we do in, in with regards to having the ability to invest in both royalties and working interest assets is so that we can take advantage of what is happening in the markets at that point in time. One, we can also you know help model our return profiles with more front-loaded return, leasehold interest, and then the, the tail return on royalty interest, and then you know enhance terminal value of the overall portfolio with having those royalties in the in the portfolio. But to date, in terms of the, the the construction of that portfolio, we have deployed the majority of that capital. We're retaining a little bit left for follow-on investments in that fund. You know, we're we're at just about split between the the DJ and the Eagleford in that portfolio. So the other piece of fund two was that we wanted to step out beyond the DJ. We, we want to stay in the DJ for sure, because you know, we like the return profile aspect of the DJ, but we wanted to round out the portfolio with another basin, exposure to another basin. So one thing that we like to look at is investments in basins in which we have operations experience. And we both certainly have operations experience in the Eagleford. So that was, you know, just a very logical transition for us to move the fund two focus to both DJ and the Eagleford. We have a very small amount of fund two in the Bakken, but really in terms of deployment of capital, I would say it's 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 within those two basins. Overall, we're just over 3,500 net royalty acres in that position, just over 5,000 net leasehold acres. And, you know, in terms of number of transactions, we've done to date just over 31 transactions within Fund 2. And at this point in time, we've seen a lot of shift in our operators, particularly in the Eagleford and some consolidation in the DJ. So we're really trying to get a handle on what those operators' long-term plans are because Fund 2 is, you know, is a nine-year fund. So we really have the time to recycle capital and look at those follow-on opportunities within that fund. And Fund2 has the ability to recycle cash, and we also implement a conservative amount of debt. 
And that wasn't the case with Fund One. Mm -hmm. So we are only a couple of years into our investment period in Fund Two. So we expect to continue to deploy capital in the DJ, in the Eagle Bird, and to the, into the Bakken at a lesser extent, as Jackie mentioned. Yeah. And so just to compare and contrast, you know, Copper Trail was 68% royalties, 32% non up, and Fund Two was over 80% non up. So I'm curious, are you, when you're looking at non op opportunities, and this is for those listening who may be able to field your deal flow. Are you going in, finding stuff that's unleased, leasing it up, and then participating, you know, more of a longer term play? Are you participating in AFEs and welfare only deals? Are you looking at packages? Are you doing, you know, have you explored doing any type of partnerships with a drilling program? I mean, how do you view your deal funnel for non-op and what has been successful to date for those who might want to feed you deal flow listening? Yeah. So with regards to non-op, we're really looking for exposure to the near-term return on that asset class. So whether it be Wilmore only interest or AFEs or, you know, unleased minerals in which we're going to participate on the leasehold, you know, we kind of fold in, can we experience return on that within 12 to 24 months. So that's really what we're looking for. We did invest in Fund 2 in a large working interest package that was publicly marketed in the Eagleford. And what we liked about that package is, while it had PDP on it, that's not, we're not predominantly a non-op PDP buyer. That that lent to our immediate return with that position, but we liked the upside component in the undeveloped acreage. I think it was about 40% undeveloped. So with, at the time, very strong operators and, and now the operators within that position have shifted to more focused, also well-capitalized operators, which can further delineate that acreage position. Almost all of the above, Tim, what you've mentioned, different ways that we've worked with folks, if they if they are looking to further understand how they could work with Union Rock, we do buy leasehold. We do prefer something more near term. We don't shy away from individual wellbore AFBs. The only thing we really are open to doing is we don't bag portfolio companies. So if you're building a position, you're looking for someone to invest in your, your drill co or something that you're doing, we're not going to do that because we want to come in and own the asset heads up. So we want to take titled interest into any investments that we make. And I'd say what we're transitioning towards is more point in conversations about being, you know, a strategic JV partner. What we found in the Eagleford, we have a roughly a 10% working interest across a 5,000 acre position that that has worked really well in terms of, you know, our technical expertise, we can we can provide some additional insight in addition to just being a non-op partner and, and paying our jibs, you know, and that's, that's worked out well with some of the planning on those upside locations. So, we started to talk to more groups about coming in and, and and being a partner on drilling. But to honest point, it's at the asset level where we take titled ownership of the asset for our participation rather than being an equity provider. But that it gives a team a surety on their ability to develop. If they know that we can come in and we can take down 20 plus percent of the deal and then allow them to retain the lion's share and to, to fulfill the operation side that they want to accomplish. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Looking to ramp up your deal flow for your minerals and non-op ground game? Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has closed on over 150 deals, totaling $135 million in value. In 2023 alone, they closed 32 transactions, with deal sizes ranging from 50 k upwards of $5 million. Whether you're looking for white space, development drilling, or PDP, the Texas Mineral Company has got you covered. For more information on how to source more deal flow, please reach out to Toby Martinez at toby 
at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Does your team ever struggle with employee turnover? What about right-sizing your team to fit your company's needs over time? Do you have the right accounting systems and software in place to maintain control and visibility on all your cost centers? If any of these things are challenges in your business, then Opportune's back office outsourcing could be the right solution. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Have you guys looked down market at you know co-bidding with an operator on the non-op side? So if an operator is looking at a $50 million acquisition, you guys come in and supply $10 million of that. Is that a structure you've looked at? We have not yet, but we're absolutely open to it. You know, We have talked to some private equity-backed operators about how can we be good partners and, and strategic partners with them. And I think that would naturally lend towards co-bidding. So we're, we're open to those discussions for sure. We've okay. co-bidded with others similar groups to us because it might be a deal that's too large for us to take down concentration reasons, et cetera. So we've co-bidded with other folks in similar firms like ours to take deals down. And that's worked well because then you, you know, another person's underwriting it. We're underwriting it. We're coming together on our thoughts around a deal. So yeah, that's, that's yielded good results in the past. So now we've talked about non-op. What about minerals? So if I'm someone on the mineral side and I want to feed you deal flow, I heard, I've heard unleased minerals. So if there's a technical thesis you guys can get comfortable with, that's of interest. What about, you know, the res cap mix and the types of deals you're looking at on the mineral side? We'll we'll take more undeveloped risk on the mineral side, but we want the the that mineral position to be in with, with you know central and basins. We're not stepping out. We have good well control, but because we have more time to watch those assets convert and and contribute to the portfolio and the return profile. So, you know, in terms of reserve cap mix, I would say we're probably around 20 or 30% producing, but you know, we'll look at near-term development and, and undeveloped as well. What we like in packages that we look at is that they have some, some mixture of all three usually, and we're really buying that package for a you know two to five-year conversion timeframe within the lion's share of the undeveloped portion of that package. Okay, excellent. So that's that's fun too. So there's reinvestment opportunities on that footprint. Can you you know what what part of the Eagleford have you guys? Is it Carnes Trough or are there there are other areas maybe on the gassy side? I mean, just to give a little bit more focus on you know where you guys have you have a footprint in fun too. With regards to royalties, we're all up and down the trend from Gonzalez all the way down to Dimmit. So we really you know are agnostic in terms of the exact location of those royalty assets. 
it's more of the how do they contribute to our return profile and our tar- targeted returns. With working interests, the large position that we're participating on is in LaSalle, McMullen, and Dimmit. Okay. So we have we have a good mixture in in that area. We're very much open to going up into the Carnes trough for sure. I encourage everyone listening here, whether it's, you know, teams like Jackie and Anna or, or others, you know, I think you guys are a unique player in that you're combining the non-op and the minerals. And at any stage in your fund, I think the needs for yield and more PUD are going to shift and evolve a little bit. I know when I'm working deal flow, I think one of the values I bring to folks is just because I speak with y'all regularly and others, it's understanding where you're at at that moment in time. And so, I, you know, it's the importance of relationship building in the space, just knowing where you're, y'all are at in the fund. And there's the generalities of what you look for, but the right asset at the right time in the right place with the right development profile could be a fit based on the needs because we don't have control in these asset classes. So sometimes development comes on a little faster than you thought, which is a good problem to have, but then you want to backload it with more inventory and then the vice versa where, hey, maybe we need a little bit more you know, production, near-term kind of whip type stuff so we can get, get that cash flow on. So just a, a food for thought, again, for those looking to feed deal flow to, to Union Rock. Um, let, let's go to fund three. So fund three launched May of last year. You had an initial close of 33 million on that. Is it the same focus basin wise, you know, deal flow wise, you know, break down fund three, where you're at today and, and what the strategy is? Pretty much, you know, we're up sizing on our fundraise, same term as fund two in terms of fund life. But since we're targeting a higher amount of committed capital, we have the ability to put money into one or two more basins. And so we're still going to have the DJ and the Eagle Ford as, you know, our kind of anchor basins of Fund 3. We've already put some of that money to work in deals within those basins. We've also stepped into the Bakken. We're participating some three-mile laterals up in the Bakken. We're very excited about that. And so we'd like to add to that portfolio as well. And, you know, additionally, I would mention across both our Fund 2 and Fund three investor base. Some of our investors have co-investment rights. And so that gives us some more flexibility to look outside of these core basins at attractive opportunities that our investors may want to participate in. So with Fund 3, you know, we're we're same asset classes, same sort of, you know, mix, both royalty and non-op working interest, but we're just expanding our footprint and try, trying to stay focused in three to four core basins overall. Well, I guess my, my question, instead of saying, what are those other basins? I would say, what other basins do you have operational experience in? And then I'll back into where else you'd be looking. So Eagleford, you have some background. DJ, obviously, what are the other areas that you guys feel comfortable with, given your uh, the Bakken, Wyoming. Wyoming. River Basin, yep. all along the Western Slope. So if gas could ever decide what it wanted to do, I think we'd love to be back on the Western Slope. Let, let's talk about the powder. The powder I've heard brought up in some recent conversations the last three to six months, I think as the Permian becomes more and more competitive, folks are starting to say, hey, maybe this time to look somewhere else because it's just getting so hard to deploy capital. It's such, there's so much competition. And so where do you look next? And, you know, the the oil leg of the Ohio Utica is something that has created a little bit of buzz. And some of the folks in the Permian, I think this is more of a velocity of capital issue. They go, yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's early but not big enough. Powder we like. Powder is massive. It's got multiple benches. You know, Nick Verrill at uh, at Wing, when he spoke at my, my Minerals and Isles conference in October, he said, you know, the powder reminds me of the Delaware Basin in 2013, 14. Not a lot of infrastructure, you know, lots of lots of inventory, you know, a little technically 
complex, but you know, some uh, the the rock is there. I found that a little surprising. You know, for me, where where I tend to focus and gravitate my attention is where there's lots of buyers, there's lots of activity, there's lots of deal flow, there's lots of you know drilling activity because that creates optionality both on the buy and sell side. And the powder kind of is slow, right? You kind of know where the drilling is. It's not many operators, not many rigs. And then the permit situation up there is completely different than any other basin. It is really more of a muddying the waters exercise than a, a signal for development. And I just think that's the way the kind of the legislative system has been set up there. But curious, what do you like about the powder? What's what's of interest maybe today going forward versus years past on why powder might be added to the mix for you guys? So Tim, the powder is a funny basin, right? I started my career in the powder. We had bought when I was part of the midstream company, Kinder Morgan's gathering system out in the powder. And so for almost 20 years, I've heard the powder is going to happen. The powder is going to happen. And remember when Chesapeake just completely land grabbed the powder almost 20 years ago now. So there's always been a lot of activity in the powder, like it's going to happen. I don't feel like it's ever really happened. And I agree with your colleague when he mentions concerns about the technical nature of it. Being a midstream person, I have a lot of concerns about the infrastructure, a lot of concerns about where are they going to move that natural gas, but that infrastructure doesn't exist. And those wells, when they do come on, they're quite large, right? So you would need meaningful infrastructure. We've seen some M&A up there on the midstream side. We've seen very little M&A on the producing on the producer side up there. But if you the way that Union Rock looks at it on the Powder River, if you get with the right operator that you have a surety that they're going to control the costs, because those can be very expensive wells to drill, and it's something near term, then we're then we're comfortable. But for the folks who go into the powder and they're grabbing up royalty acres or leasehold acres and just some somewhat of a big land grab, we've seen too many people fail at that. And and is the per acre cost spectacular? Do you think that makes your book look really good? Sure. But if they never develop it, who cares what you bought it at if it's never going to turn into anything? or you're never really going to be able to sell it to anyone. So we really view the powder opportunistically if we're just going into one pad or working with a strategic partnership with one operator in the, in the, in the powder. So it's a little bit different than what we'd be willing to buy in the DJ. Have you ever found yourself wandering the halls of Nape, feeling lost in the sea of boots and attendees, and thinking to yourself, where the hell are all the minerals and non-op executives? Well, my friends, worry no more. On February 8th, Nate will be launching their inaugural Minerals and Non-Op Hub, which will serve as a dedicated and central location for minerals and non-op executives to network and show deals. For more information, please Google Nape Minerals and Non-Op Hub or email exhibit at napeexpo.com. On the midstream side, it, I mean, it sounds like greenfield development is what what needs to happen. I'm not as familiar, really, with Wyoming and Montana and legislative, you know, bureaucracy that might be in place. But is is there a path forward to build that infrastructure if if the capital's there, or are we talking about the Marcellus and MVP was was the last hurrah, and it's there's no more pipelines going forward? No, bureaucracy has never been a big concern in Wyoming on the infrastructure side because Wyoming does want want to facilitate development. And part of doing that is to work with folks on pipeline infrastructure. It's really the operators not willing to commit in a meaningful way on the capital and the volume side to some of that greenfield building that needs to be done. And then people who have taken big swings, you're seeing delays and just the timeline of, of people being able to get that pipeline in. And it's not just the midstream infrastructure, you have the big takeaway pipes, because who's really going to be able to, to handle all of 
the NGLs outside of there other than One Oak and others. So it's not just the infilled infrastructure that they need. It's some of the long haul pipelines that need to be addressed. But again, to me, I believe it's all capital outside of not regulatory. Gotcha. Uh, staying on the topic of midstream, and I know, Anna, this is your background. It's it's part of what you guys feel as a management team you bring to the table for value add for your investors, right? When you're talking about minerals, you're talking about Nana, uh, and you're talking about marketing and midstream dynamics, there's a lot of different things and ways you can look at it. I guess let's start with Nana because you're doing more and more of it. Do you, have you ever taken anything in kind? I'm sure you've had that discussion. Let's talk about <laughs> barrels in kind and the, the exciting upside and also the challenging realities of it sometimes with JOAs and the constraints that it can have. So over to you. Well, I wasn't going to give you a hard time earlier on in the conversation here, Tim, but you did say when you're investing in non-op and you're investing in royalties, you don't have any control over that. You don't have any control over development. Development. We don't agree with that over here at Union Rock. We do think that you can implement some control and some direction when you are investing in those asset classes. And one of them happens to be on the midstream side. And you are correct that there are provisions within a JOA that you can exert some of your rights and responsibilities around the take in kind and the midstream provisions there. We currently are taking some gas in kind in the Eagleford. It was part of a larger transaction that we did in funds too. And it was something that allowed us to be competitive in that publicly marketed process because we were willing to take that on. Whereas a lot of other non-op groups and or royalty groups weren't willing to do that. So we currently work with a few different folks on the processing side and the pipeline side to get that gas to market. I will say that it's not as easy as selling, oh, I'm just going to sell my own barrels if I'm taking in kind. You have to remember you have all of these royalty owners behind that. So it's quite, sure is not the right word, but it's administratively intensive. Yeah, it's very administratively intense to be able to take product in kind. And we're able to do that because we have the right partners and the right team in-house. But I do want to note that. But what it's allowed us to do, it's given us flexibility to to bench ourselves against other operators in the same basin. What are our netbacks looking like for our take-in-kind volume versus what we're getting with these other operators? So it's something that's very easy to measure that value. Am I administratively with that burden? Is it, are we expending too much capital into the accounting portion of that to take-in-kind? So does that really make it worth it? So you really just have to look at all the different things that go into that. But we've also made some larger swings here in the DJ where we also evaluated taking our crude oil in kind. Is the operator getting it to the right market? Do we know that they have the infrastructure to get that product into market? So we've gone pretty far down the road with a couple different operators here in the DJ to evaluate if we take those barrels in kind. And we typically will take moves to, if it's a large position for us to protect ourselves in the JOA to reserve that right. What I, I'm no expert here. So if some of these questions are dumb, please bear with me. <laughs> My understanding are... is sometimes it gets built into the JOA that if you take it in kind, you have to have your own infrastructure built. That's true. That's part of your evaluation, because if you're having to set your own independent locked units on those different pads, and then you're having to have your own interconnect points, that is very capital intensive. So really, you should be working with the right operator in the first place that would be managing their business on the midstream side. So you wouldn't be forced into that. It's just really nice to know that we have the skill set over here. If you did end up with a bad actor at some point in time, that you have the ability to then take those barrels, set that locked unit. And there are are buyers out there in the market that will support you being able to come up with the funds to set your own lact and you can make the commitments of your own barrels to those different folks to close the gap on that so you're not taking that all on yourself. Interesting. Yeah, so I guess 
It all comes down to the math, right? Have you gone down the road seriously and thought about pulling the trigger of, okay, we're going to have to have our own interconnect points. Maybe we we bring in someone to to build those and it makes sense math-wise. Does it get to that point or is it cost prohibitive typically when you have to do it all yourself from an infrastructure standpoint? We looked at it when we owned 40% of a unit. And when we owned that much of that unit, I was right at the point where it made sense for us to take full control of that barrel. But then we made a decision over here at Union Rock to take a little less, less exposure to that pad. So we sold down some of that pad. And as soon as I went under kind of that 40% mark, then I started to lose some of the synergy, started to lose some of the benefit in that math problem that you're talking about for that to make sense. But it's okay. still a good exercise because it keeps everyone honest, right? We're active managers. It's our responsibility to make sure that we run that down. It keeps the operator honest to know that we're going down that route because they also don't want to lose those barrels. Because even if they don't own 100% of all of those barrels off that pad, they may have committed those barrels to NBCs to get some infrastructure to their own pad that they would then lose if I took my barrels and kind. So they're incentivized to treat you fair as a non-op partner. They're incentivized to do the right thing so they can make their own commitments to get infrastructure to their pads. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy, so you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own oil and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who since 1929 has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Are you looking for deal flow in the Haynesville, the Eagleford, or the Permian? What about the Scoop Stack, the San Juan Basin, or the DJ Bakken or Powder? Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has closed on over 150 non-op and minerals transactions in all of these basins, ranging from 50K to 5 million, or 20 to 3,500 NRAs. If you're interested in finding out more information on how the Texas Mineral Company can feed you deal flow, then be sure to reach out to Toby Martinez at toby at the Texas Mineral Company.com. Scaling up your portfolio while minimizing GNA is the name of the game in the minerals and non-op space. Whether you're a brand new fund, an established team who's growing quickly, or a fully developed portfolio in harvest mode, Opportune's back office outsourcing team can help. Stop worrying about all the headaches that come along with day-to-day accounting and back office operations and contact Opportune today. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Hi there, it's Rachel Reese at Our Reese & Associates, your outhouse counsel. You may ask, what's an outhouse counsel? Well, it's a law firm that is focused on the day-to-day legal tasks that normally would be completed by your legal department. 
Our attorneys in Houston and DFW have spent their careers in both in-house positions and at large law firms and can provide your company with the efficient and responsive service you would expect from your own legal department for things like contracts, transactions, and title opinions at a fraction of the cost of what you're used to paying. So whether your company has no legal department or your legal department is a mighty team of one, we can help. Give us a call at 832-831-2289 or learn more at rreeslaw.com. That's an interesting angle I hadn't thought of because I would think to myself, they want to keep you in the dark and and rip your face off with the pricing to the best extent they can get away with it. But yeah, they want the volume for those commitments. And and then also there's obviously, you know, business ethics and everything. But that aside, just trying to think about it just from a pure margin standpoint, that that makes sense. Well, I guess it's, I mean, you guys are clearly very focused on this and sophisticated with it. I mean, when you're looking at deals and underwriting everything, you're, it sounds like you're starting to map this stuff out and look at different differentials and who terms are preferential and all that. So that's clearly part of your underwriting process. So what, what about from a minerals perspective? How do you foresee, how do you look at midstream marketing? Is it as important or is it a similar process and you're, you're just not able to influence maybe as much, but it's still very influential on the underwriting. Just curious how you see it from a minerals lens. Well, I appreciate that you bifurcated the two asset classes because you would approach it different based on asset class. And on the royalty side, you're really just going to have to be educated to the area where you're buying those royalties. Do I believe that that takeaway exists? Do I believe that there's market for that county that we're in, that basin, et cetera? But you don't have the same control or some of the levers that you can pull on the non-op side. So we do exercise our expertise in the underwriting for that versus how we actively manage it post-close. Okay, excellent. One thing you'd mentioned before we jumped on is that your team's grown materially. I, I don't know if that's kind of throughout Fund 2 but now Fund 3. I, I know you guys are hedging now. I don't. I remember Reggie spoke at one of my conferences three or so years ago, and I, I don't remember you guys hedging at that point. So there's an evolution of growth with more AUM and more team members and more capabilities. You want to talk about you know how and why you've expanded the team, and then would love to jump in on the hedging side too to get your thoughts on how you see the world from a hedging perspective. Well, as we you know started Fund 2 and had aspirations to start Fund 3 with we with how we saw how we were able to deploy that capital very quickly, you know we knew that we wanted to build our team, but, but keep the core competency and and kind of the core values of our team in place. In in essence, having operations expertise and capabilities, even though we do not operate, we very much value that experience and that expertise in our underwriting and our active management of our portfolios, as well as, you know, just very some some very logical additions to our team with respect to portfolio management. And so we've we've expanded our team to six to date that are in our office. We still work with a lot of the same third-party contracts that we've been working with for the last decade. And then those three individuals that came in, they have all contributed on our portfolio management. So they all came over from various operators and operations experience, but have you know their specific expertise, whether it be land, reserves, or, or accounting and audit experience. What that's meant for us is you know to be able to expand our capability to manage a greater portfolio of assets, but it's really enhanced 
enhanced our expertise, though, in terms of, you know, looking at the Bakken, for example, and expanding there in Fund 3. You know, we have two different team members that have come on board that have Bakken operations experience. And so, you know, and then we, as we look at a Ford Basin, having team members with, with operations experience is only additive to our investment thesis. And I think anytime that you build a team that came directly out of operations company, it continues the thesis over here, but it also allows you to see new deal flow because all of us are actively in the market and all of us are passionate about the basins where we've all been a part of an operations team. And these folks also, for the most part, came out of private equity-backed companies. And so I think that they also experienced some of the inefficiencies when you're backed by private equity that we're trying to eliminate here at Union Rock, where we are the private equity and we are the operations team. So you're cutting out that layer and for them to know what it's like on the other side to oversimplify it, living on that other side and then come over to Union Rock has just brought us a lot of value. And our company culture is fantastic. I just really appreciate everyone that we've brought on over the last year plus. It's It's been really great. And everyone has a lot of experience. I think yeah. the minimum experience is about 15 years of, of the folks that we've added to our team. So, you know, we're talking about seasoned professionals that have joined this team and are experts in their specific area that, that we've hired them for. I was going to say with regards to hedging, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we took a higher exposure to working interest in the Fund 2 portfolio, which just begs the need to be more price protected on those returns and that invested capital. So we definitely pursued a hedging strategy also with employing or employing debt on our fund two portfolio. There's a hedge requirement on a portion of those assets. But in continuing with the, the thesis of being very active managers, we're very active on the hedging side and with managing our hedge portfolio. Because our AUM is quickly approaching 150 million over here at Union Rock. So we do want to be able to manage that and to protect those invested dollars. Well, how do you guys view hedging though? Is it we want to cover our capex commitments and you know our interest payments on our debt facility, or do we want to protect returns and lock in returns, or is it a bit of both and it's opportunistic based on the market? How do you guys view hedging? Because I kind of see two camps, kind of how I I describe with different groups. Well, I, I think it's a little bit of all the different areas that you've mentioned. The first thing that we want to do is make sure that we are honoring our RBL commitments with our bank, so we are going to hedge within the parameters within those agreements first and foremost. And then after that, we are looking at the non-op dollars that we're spending on the drilling and completion side, and we want to protect those invested dollars. So then in addition to protecting the invested dollars that we're pulling from our LPs, we also want to protect the ability to distribute to our limited partners. So we want to make sure that we can protect a lot of that cash flow with the hedges that we put in place. But we don't want to get overly aggressive because we don't want to miss opportunities in the market either. So we do allow there to be a bucket that can float with the market and then we can take advantage of particular situations because we know it's been quite volatile, right? We keep bouncing around by four to five dollars in the last two weeks. The last thing I want to cover to wrap up the episode. So fund one's been fully monetized. So you guys are not opposed to selling. So how do you think about monetizing your assets for those listening who may be a buyer from you, right? Versus we've been talking about the lens of them feeding assets to you, right? So it it sounds like, you know, nine-year fund life, you guys have provisions to reinvest capital and, and compound equity dollars. So that clearly, you know, obviously is advantageous for investors 
investors, y'all's own money, but at the right time, there's always exiting something. It makes sense. So do you look at it over concentration in units or it gets to the right development profile or does it make more sense to take cash and liquidate that to a, like an income fund like an Invico, right? Who that's what their investors want and you can create more value for your investors by investing ahead of the drill bit or longer term on the mineral side. I mean, how do you think about y'all's your, portfolios? Because if anyone comes across title with Union Rock or knows you're in certain areas and it's a very good strategic fit for them and they want to talk about ways to collaborate where you're selling some assets, how do you guys think about that so that everyone's time is best spent? Well, this young in a fund like, you know, it's an opportunity cost, right? Because we can recycle cash flows. You know, we have to look at what we're being offered on an asset in comparison to what we can do with those cash flow dollars and, and you know, further compound our return in the fund. That That's just more in general. I'll, I'll, I'll give that an answer to that question. But more specifically, you know, when we look at new investment opportunities, as Anna mentioned, you know, if we're looking at a 40 or 50 percent working interest exposure, we have concentration limits within our funds. We're not going to invest at that high of a working interest. And so we have an opportunity to sell down some of our exposure and or offer it up to co as co-investment opportunities to our in investors. You know, on the royalty side here in 2024, we're going through an exercise on the fund two portfolio to very much rationalize some of our smaller cash flowing interests to see if how much they really contribute to our overall return profile. So, you know, there may be some smaller packages that we roll out more opportunistically as we evaluate how much they actually contribute to our overall fund returns. Okay. Excellent. Well, listen, thanks for coming back on. It was, it was great to catch up. Any, I'll leave the, the closing mic to y'all. Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of different things here, but final messages, how you want folks to think about Union Rock. And we have NAEP right around the corner. So, you know, folks bump into you at NAEP, you know, what, what would be of most interest for y'all to talk about? I'll let you take it away. I think in terms of industry partners, you know, we're we're a low, lower middle market player, both in the royalty and non-op space. You know, so when you're thinking about partnering with us or, or selling to us, you know, since we are the private equity firm and the management, the asset management team, we can underwrite very quickly on transactions and evaluate those transactions. So, you know, if there's a time sensitive need, we are a good group to to go to to look at uh, an acquisition opportunity, as well as with our operations background and expertise, we're a good group to talk to about partnering on the non-op side, you know, if you're a smaller operations team and, and want a true technical partner in your operations and development. With regards to our investor base, you know, we're a good investment opportunity to look at that's in addition to the large private equity investment opportunities, as well as the public investment opportunities because of the distribution or dividend profile that we have with our investor base. Also, you know, with the fact that we own assets, we can opportunistically sell those up into the middle and, and public markets as well. So, you know, we provide a liquidity option for our investors. And then we also can, you know, sell up strategically to end buyers. It makes sense, like income funds and, and others. Phenomenal. Well, thanks again for coming on and looking forward to seeing y'all during the in a few weeks. All right. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you. Tim. Appreciate it. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments. 
nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.